0: got a Bible, we're going to be in uh, two places tonight. Uh, obviously Exodus 20, um, we've been there for a couple of weeks, but we're actually going to begin our time together in Deuteronomy 6. Um, I'll explain that in just a minute, but if you would please... Uh Open up to Deuteronomy 6 and put a t- marker in Exodus 20. We'll turn back there in just a few minutes and continue where we left off in Exodus. Um, and, and once you l- look at where you're at in Deuteronomy 6, you'll, you'll see that uh, we're kind of talking about the same thing, just looking at a different text. Uh, so tonight, we are going to look at the second half of the Ten Commandments, and we're not going to spend several weeks on these. We're actually going to just look at the, whole, the second half kind of all at once. Um, and while the tendency is uh, when we study the Ten Commandments, usually um, if you've ever been to, uh, been a part of these Bible studies, um, um, I've done them uh, myself before and, and been a part of other studies before. Most of the emphasis when people study the Ten Commandments um, is given to the first half. Um, and uh, usually we get to the second half and we kind of just breeze past these very familiar, um, very short, commandments. Um, The reason for which is because the first half um, can be dissected and elaborated on and we can do these extensive studies about the nature of God and the character of God and how he wants to relate to us and how he uh, reveals himself um, in those first few commandments. And we've done that the last couple of weeks actually. Um, And then the last half is more of a rapid fire. Hey, we already know these things. We know they're wrong, right? Um, Here's some things you should not do. Here's some things that are sinful. We've heard they're sinful since we were little. We don't really need to be we don't need to really hear sermons on them because of course i shouldn't do this and of course i shouldn't do that and you know thou shalt not x y and z and if we really talk about them for too long um we kind of start thinking well do you think i'm that immoral and that awful that i struggle with that i mean uh, by all means you know i i I know that uh i should not do um as the commandments clearly say i should not do and and it's often that we just kind of breeze past these commandments. Um, but tonight, I, I want to show how connected these two halves are um, and talk about why God tells us specifically Here's some things you need to avoid. Even though for us it's really self evident that we should not do these things, but it doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with these things, whether literally um, or in some you know sort of uh, spiritual fashion. Um, so before we go down the list and before we look at Exodus, uh, we're going to look at a passage in Deuteronomy six. Um, and the reason why Deuteronomy six is important um, is that Deuteronomy, it, the whole Bible, the whole book of Deuteronomy, is literally a re giving of the law, and it's actually a re giving of the law to a new generation. Um, Exodus 20 through 40 is the first giving of the law. Um, it was given by Moses to the Exodus generation at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, and as you all know, as we'll study over the next several months, I'm sure, um, they spend 40 years wandering in circles, and that generation dies off. And their children, who did not comprehend nor really um, you know, understand what was given at in, in Exodus 20 um, through 40 and, and all that was told at Mount Sinai, now they're about to go into the promised land, and as they are in the plains of Moab at the foot of Mount Nebo, Moses um, re-gives or restates the law, re-declares all that God promised at Sinai to this new generation of people, but still the children of Israel. So, Deuteronomy is essentially just a retelling of the book of Exodus and of the events of Leviticus and the events of numbers. So Deuteronomy 5, if you actually look, you'll actually notice that Deuteronomy 5 looks very similar to to Exodus 20, because it literally is just a copy and paste. Of course, it was restated and re-given, but it's just the same chapter, the same commandments repeated to a new generation. And then in Deuteronomy 6... We get a summary statement regarding the law as a whole, which is not found in Exodus. As Moses is trying to, he's had several years to think on it and talk and pray about it and kind of gather his thoughts. And as God inspires him in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses kind of gives this summary statement about the whole law, the whole covenant that God has made with Israel, which should, which actually goes down as maybe the maybe the most repeated and most quoted scripture of all time. For the Jewish people, um, because the Jewish people would actually, and to this day, recite Deuteronomy six as they worship corporately, as they gathered to worship in the ancient days at the tabernacle, in the ancient days at the temple, and today in the synagogues for all thousands of years, three thousand plus years, Jews have gathered together and repeated what we're about to read, which is known as the Shema, which is the Jewish confession of their faith. So it's like a confession the Jewish people have been reciting. Um, so it was a pretty big deal in um, the confession summarizes the heart and the spirit of the law and the essence of living for God and this I think is going to help us understand in its original context what the law was all about. So Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 through 9 is this sort of summary statement, this blanket statement that kind of captures what the Ten Commandments and the law itself is all about. And pay very close attention how the Ten Commandments are all of a sudden referred to as a single commandment. Notice f- verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So he is summarizing the Ten Commandments, but he does so in a very singular fashion. That you may fear the Lord your God to do, do "...to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you and you and your son, your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength." All these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. shall talk of them when you sit on your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. So this is a very uh, importance given to repeating and memorizing and, and restating and, and so forth the word of God specifically. specifically. Specifically, the commandments of God. And again, verse 1 says this is the commandment. And verse 4 and 5 is this single commandment that the Jews to this day understand as kind of encompassing, All Ten Commandments, every commandment that God has ever given, the Jews understand, we as well understand, are summarized in and captured in this single commandment. So you understand what we're doing? We're going from ten to one, and Moses summarizes the ten that he just repeated in chapter 5, and he says in chapter 6, this one commandment is enough to capture all that we have just learned about. And again, verse 5 is that one commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So this is the Shema. This confession the Jews have been repeating for years and years and years that we should love the Lord your God with all that you are in thought, in word, and in deed. That's a pretty succinct way of putting it, I think, and a pretty succinct way of saying it. Essentially, this is saying that honoring God, obeying God, and living for God is the overflow, is the logical progression of, is the natural extension of honoring God, obeying God, living for God, is the next step, the overflow of loving God. right? So if we love God, Moses is saying that all these things that we've learned that we should do for God and should do for others also... are an extension, are the overflow of having the highest of love for God. Now, if you just think of the first five commandments, it's easy to see that connection, isn't it? I mean, if you think of the first five, um, we can understand them as describing or pointing to God's supremacy, God's image, God's name, God's provisions, And God's authority, right? The supremacy of God, you shall have no other gods beside Him, right? The the image of God, that we shouldn't have a graven image because we are made in His image, so we should honor Him, right? As His own. That His name is holy, so we should honor His name. That God provides, so the Sabbath day reminds us that He is the one that has given us all that we have, our life, our provisions. And even the commandment about honoring our parents, it speaks of honoring the authority that is above us, our parents, a picture of our God. So I will love Him above all else. I will love Him. I will honor Him as God alone. I will honor His image. I will honor His name. I will honor His blessings. I will honor His authority. It's self-evident, honestly, but that's just the first five. But the Shema is the commandment, And the next five must fall under that same idea. But to love God is to also impact the way we treat other people. And that's the next five commandments. If you'll turn back to Exodus 20, you probably don't even have to look at the Scripture because most of you know these next five commandments. Most of us could, repeat, could quote these before we could quote the first five. Um, we probably could get them all pretty close, right? But we all know what the, first, what the next five are and what they say, but let's read them or follow along with me, if you will. Exodus 20, verse number 13. Thou shalt, or you shall not murder... "...you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that belongs to him or anybody else, right, is the picture there. Is the point there. Don't covet. Don't envy someone else's possessions. You should focus on what you've been given, but we'll get to that in just a minute. So Exodus 20, verse 13 through 17, all have to do with our behavior and our actions toward other people. But, Again, what is the Shema? What is the commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and might. Right? So what is, what is the Bible telling us here? That if loving God right takes care of everything, then it doesn't just speak to how we honor Him, it also speaks to how we honor them, or how we honor one another. So the Ten Commandments also reveal to us that our love for God isn't just measured by behavior toward Him, but also our behavior towards Others. Right. This means, maybe makes it a little uncomfortable at times, but this is the really the, the most clear I can put it. Faith isn't just a private, unseen devotion, but clearly a public demonstrated practice. See, we Baptists, we love the fact that nobody knows what's in my heart, and it's just me and Jesus. I can confess to Him, and He can take care of me. I can mess up and go back to Him, and it's not anybody else's business, and that's true in part. But faith is not just. It's not just. It's never just been. It never will just be a private, unseen devotion. It is clearly a public, demonstrated practice. And honestly, if we just stopped here in our study or trying to understand this, that should be enough. I mean, if we love God, we should obey God. And if God's commandments impact how we impact others, how we behave toward others, we don't really need an explanation, do we? I mean, you, I don't think we need an explanation because if you're like me, we've been raised in church, right? So we've known God says this, so I shouldn't do this. And the rest of the sermon really would be unnecessary because we don't really need anybody. We don't really aren't really owed any extra explanation. I mean, if we love God, we should obey God. And God says don't hurt anybody, right? God says you're made for one person, so don't cheat or use someone for personal pleasure. God says don't steal, God says don't lie, and God says don't covet. It's not that hard. But, because God is gracious and because we are sinful, and even though we might get pretty righteous and we can shout and say, God said it, that settles it, that does not mean that we're that squeaky clean, does it? And even though we don't need an explanation as to why we shouldn't murder, or why we shouldn't commit adultery, why we shouldn't steal, or why we shouldn't covet or lie, we might still need one. We just don't really want to admit it. right? We don't need somebody to tell us why these are sins, because we've known it for a long time. But that still doesn't address the fact that in every one of our hearts, there's still this thing that says, you know what? Really, all the only thing that matters is what me and God are doing, Right? And if I hurt somebody, or if I take from somebody, if I do some stuff that nobody else knows about that doesn't impact everybody or doesn't impact God, it doesn't really matter. There's something in us that drifts away from this horizontal element of our faith that we think we can gather in buildings and sing and give and listen, and that might be enough, but the Ten Commandments tell us that is not enough. And your faith won't allow it to be enough. Enough. Jesus comes along and sees that people struggle with the public part. And isn't it true that if we struggle with the public part, it probably suggests that we struggle with the private part too? That if we have trouble making our faith practiced, it probably reveals that we're having trouble with our private devotion too. But nobody can see how good or how, aren't, how good we aren't doing at heart, right? And we can put on a show at church. But if our faith is not being practiced and the way we treat one another does not reflect the faith that we claim, that may suggest that our faith in our heart is not really all that we've cracked it up to be actually. Remember, Jesus makes this connection that is so, so helpful, and it's so, so crucial Jesus came along and called back to these commandments. You'll remember Matthew 5. He, He came along and said, You've heard it said of old, but I say unto you. You've heard Moses say you should not murder, but I say unto you should not hate. You've heard Moses say don't commit adultery, but I say you should not lust. You've heard Moses say this, but I say this. And it's almost like he elevates the stakes or he raises the stakes. But what he's doing is trying to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. He gets underneath the motives behind these sins and He reveals that behind murder, behind adultery, behind stealing are these emotions of hate and lust and greed and vengeance and jealousy. And while you may never have been tempted to commit adultery or commit murder, we've all been tempted by hate and greed and jealousy and vengeance and lust. And as righteous as we may appear in church, we are so unrighteous when nobody's looking. And where this shows up is not in the building like this. It's out there in our behavior towards other people. And he said, if these emotions dwell in your heart, it's as bad as committing these sins. So essentially, he's saying that these emotions express a disconnect with God and will lead to a fallout with people. And the reason why we can't accept fallouts with people is because if there's a fallout with a lot of people, it suggests there's a disconnect with the one God. And for Jesus, this was, there was, and there is no such thing as a static faith. For Jesus, and to to add to that... For Peter, for Paul, for James, and John, these men that wrote the New Testament, Jesus that started the movement, He does not accept the fact that we can believe and somehow remain as we were. Because if we've been reconciled to God, if we have fallen in love with God and been reconciled and redeemed, impacted by what He's done for us, we will be different in how we do to others. For Jesus, that if we've been reconciled and redeemed, and we've been made righteous, that behind all of that, the catalyst behind all of that is love. And as we have been loved, we will love. So how we behave will be changed because of how we've been saved. Because why would we covet Why would we be jealous of what God gave someone else when we believe He's given us exactly what we need? Why would we steal when we believe God has given us exactly what we need? Why would we cheat or spoil a future relationship when we believe God has given or will give exactly what we need? Right? So if we have been saved, we confess that God has given to each of us what each of us need. And these commandments address that there's a temptation in all of us to somehow usurp that sovereignty of God. And say, God, I don't know if you've given me what exactly I need or not. And you know what happens when we get out of our line, we get out of our little box. We bump into a lot of other people. And when we break our trust in God and say, "Hey God, I don't know if you've given me exactly what I have expected," we will be tempted to cross the line. And take from what he has given others. Or take what he never meant for us to have. And you see how these things are inseparable now, don't you? You see how if we love God, then there has to be some sort of reciprocal love for one another. And our treatment of others reflect our love for and from God. So this isn't just a commandment that we should not murder or that we should not commit adultery or that we should not steal or lie or covet, but it's also a commandment that there's a better way to live. So instead of coveting, we respect others and what God has given us. Instead of taking, we give. Instead of cheating, we commit. Instead of being jealous, we give thanks. We give thanks to what God has given us. We actually give thanks for what God has given others because God is the one who gives, right? And He knows best. We don't use someone. We serve everyone. So to say these are just commandments that we shouldn't do this is not enough. They're commandments that say, hey, this is the old way, but they point us to a new way. And it's all under this imperative of loving. We speak wholesome truth rather than betraying our new identity in Christ. And just to speak on the commandment about lying lying is not just being dishonest about what we see, but being dishonest about who we are. You know what is the most dishonest thing a Christian can do? To hate. Because it betrays our identity, right? You know what is so dishonest about when a Christian lowers their standards to live as the world is living? It betrays our identity, right? It reflects an example that you are not, right? It reflects an identity that you are no longer a part of. It's lying to the world about who you have been saved to be. And where this really becomes so difficult is how we treat one another. Jesus builds this foundation about, on being loved by God and loving God The Holy Spirit leading us to make this love so practical. When Jesus was confronted on one occasion by the Sadducees, Pharisees, they were trying to trick him, and they were going to come at him and ask him what the greatest commandment was. And of course, Jesus knew what the greatest commandment was. They knew what it was. They were expecting him to give them a quote from Deuteronomy 6, first number five that we just read. So one day, Jesus was confronted by these men, and they said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus, not to be tricked, says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. But because Jesus helps us out and explains what we maybe can't see sometimes, Jesus says, but y'all have been missing one big part of this. Because half of the Ten Commandments deal with how you treat each other. And while y'all look real holy in the temple, y'all look real holy in the streets. While you look real holy at worship, you don't look real holy at work. While you seem real holy in the worship center, you don't look real holy when nobody's looking but those that are closest to you. And Jesus says, you know, y'all have been ignoring the whole the half of the commandments because to love God is not just to look up and look holy, it's to reach out and be holy. Which is why Jesus says this is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. As in, you can't have this side of the coin without having this side of the coin. And I know y'all don't have a verse for this side of the coin in Deuteronomy 6, but it's been there the whole time. Because half of the commandments literally deal with how you treat one another. So you can't love God without also loving one another. He says, on this hang the entire book. But don't you dare walk away and tell me it's just about how you love a God that you can't see. Because I'm telling you it's about how you love people that you can see. Jesus tells us in that passage that we can't love God without loving others. It's as if he is saying, and in fact he is saying, our love for God is authenticated and validated by our love for one another, by our love for others. God won't let us hate. God won't let us misuse because God does not hate us. God loves us, and if God loves us, God's love is within us. Therefore, there is no room for hatred. Now, what is the basis for God's love? How did God demonstrate his love? We all know this, but John writes it better than I could say it. And this is the love of God made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice, they won't let us get away with just saying, Hey, God loves you, you should love Him. John, like Jesus, like the Old Testament, says there's another side of the coin. Because if God has loved us, we ought also to love one another. God values us. That's what that word perpetuation means. He put a value on us. He portrayed or He showed His value for us by giving the greatest sacrifice for us. So we value others as He has valued us. Therefore, our behavior towards others in close relationships, in professional relationships, in our interactivity with strangers even reflects or should reflect love and value. Our authenticity as Christians is measured by our behavior, not just our beliefs. Oh, if we would just get this, church. So clearly, we would never consider murdering. We wouldn't ever consider hating or holding grudges because God forgives us and if He loves us, we always find it within ourselves to love and forgive others. Not really the case, is it? And oh, we've never picked up a weapon and hurt someone physically, but oh, how we do it with our words. How we do it with our thoughts. We make enemies as fast or faster than we make friends. How many times should we forgive? How many times do we rebuild bridges? As many times as you have to. Because love is relentless. And honestly, our faith is not measured in how we love or how well we love our friends, but in how relentless we are in our love for our enemies and those unlike us. I was making that sound because that's exhausting to think about doing, right? Not because that's exciting. (laughs) But we should be shouting because of how true that is and how necessary it is. We've got to spend some time talking about Commandments 7 through 10, though. We see a range of relational issues from public to private. Something we all need to know about Commandment number 7, thou shalt not commit adultery, is not just speaking about extramarital affairs, but it really speaks to a perversion of sexuality in general. And if that has ever applied to a generation, it is ours today. In the ancient world, though, maybe you don't know this, probably you do, in the ancient world, even in today's world, sex was just physical. In the ancient world, it was a means of pleasure and power for men to exert over women, even men, slaves, and the weak. That's why if you open Leviticus 18, there are entire chapters of the Bible where men are commanded to not use other people for their own means of pleasure. Because men used other people for their own means of pleasure. They took whoever and whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it. But love does not accept that kind of lifestyle. Love knows that we're made for better. Better. Love knows that sexuality is not just a feeling, it's not just a commodity, it's an expression of God's love given to a man and a woman to enjoy in the covenant of marriage. Sex is not about taking it, it's about giving between consenting married committed husbands and wives. Sex is not a fantasy or a thrill or about control. Sexuality is meant to be a sacred expression of love and a blessing between two committed souls. And I say souls because it's deeper than just skin. But when mishandled and misunderstood. It can do severe damage and scar souls and break hearts. Love doesn't take from someone something that was meant for somebody else. Love doesn't consider itself, but it respects others. Love does not hurt. Love is not selfish. You know, marriage and sexuality need to be talked more about in the church. I know it's awkward and it doesn't seem necessary for everybody, no matter what sta- depending on what stage of life you're in, but there the church that have never realized the weakness and never made restitution for their sins and marriages have suffered and ended because of it and they may have not ended on paper but they've ended in person when you consider murder and sexuality these things can be taken there are things that are taken that cannot be given back murder may break bodies but sexual sins break souls So we need to talk more about this, not just for those who have been offended, but those who are offending. Society has warped sexuality into something that is just for pleasure. But it's not. On a lighter but more serious note, stealing and lying and coveting deal with the same notion, taking things meant for others, taking things meant for good, and losing their purpose. They speak about being honest with your work, with your words and thoughts, That we should not take from others, but we should work for what God will give us. We should not use our words to hurt others or betray ourselves, but use our words to build others up and to testify about who God is. We should use our thoughts to rejoice for what he's given us and for others, not think what we might would rather have for ourselves just like with sexuality we should be we should not be takers but we should be givers givers of our service givers of truth givers of joy we serve rather than taking from others we tell the truth we live the truth we model the truth rather than lie we offer up joy rather than complaining or being jealous god has done so much for us our lives should reflect his gifts And to sum all this up, Jesus made this so practical. It's better for me to cite him than anybody else. The night before Jesus died, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. You'll know that story very well, right? Jesus realized that he had all the power in the room. He realized that he was going to heaven and he had come from heaven and he was going to go back to the throne above. He realized that he had control of everything. But Jesus, in that moment, laid his power down. In that moment, he emptied himself. He poured himself out for the sake of others. And they didn't realize what he was doing. But Jesus said, later on you realize what I just did. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. You should do to others as I have done to you. That is the platinum rule, right? That we should do to others as Jesus has done to us. He laid His life down for us. He forgave us. He saved us. We can't save everyone, of course, but Jesus has and He's doing a work through us and the church should never forget this one thing. Remember, he washed even Judas's feet. After this, he welcomed him to the table and shared the sacred meal with him. As to make it very clear of what our mission is, but even more so to highlight his own heart and just how pure and perfect his love is for everybody. And then he turned to his disciples and he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should have love for one another. So he takes the entire law and bottles it down to one single commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Love me, live for me, but it's not just about what you do up and down vertical heaven to earth. It's about what you do, hands and feet, arms of the kingdom. It's about how you treat one another. This is not number 11. This is number one. This would be an all-encompassing commandment that would set the church apart, that would change the world. If we got this one thing right, it would change culture. It would change hearts. It would reflect God's heart clearly and powerfully without fail with every thought, word, and deed. Love one another as I have loved you. This means there are no excuses. We have to ask ourselves before every act done in secret or in public, but before we interact with strangers, family, friends, or enemies. What does love require of me so whether it's a thought that we have whether it's a word that we say or an action that we take if love has taken root in our hearts love should take control of our actions love doesn't take advantage love does not mistreat love does not break confidence Love always considers what is for others good, not what might be against them. It is sacrificial, never selfish. And this applies to God and to people. So to summarize, I think, verses 13 through 17, we can't love someone and sin against them. You can't. You can't love someone and sin with them. Which addresses one specific of those five. Just because someone consents doesn't mean that it's an act of love. You can't love someone and sin with them. You can't love someone and take advantage of them. You can't love someone and use them. You can't love someone and do what is ultimately dishonoring to them and to everybody else. The only thing that counts is faith working itself through love. And that's what Jesus was doing when he laid down his life, when he laid down his power. That's what he calls us to do every single day. And he says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are mine if you have love for one another. Not how holy you look on Sundays. Not how loud you sing. Not how well you preach. Not how talented you are in the spiritual gifts. But how you love one another. How you treat one another. How you show yourself as a servant for one another. That is how you will make a difference in our world. Not our wisdom, not our attendance, not our power, how we serve, how we love. We cannot have bad, selfish days. We have to love if we want the world to know. It requires putting God first, and putting God first puts other people first. To be saved is to be loved. And to be saved is to love. It's the two sides of the same coin. The Old Covenant had Ten Commandments and it had several other hundred commandments that clarified what those ten meant. But the New Covenant has one commandment. No other laws necessary. If we are recipients of this New Covenant, this cup of grace, saved and forgiven, this one makes so much sense and it covers All ten. One more time. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. The word new there is not neo in Greek. Neo in Greek just means the next. The word new is kanye, which means something of a different species. Something of a different model. As in, not something that comes next, but something that replaces. A new commandment. By this, by this, all will know you are mine if you have love for one another. The Ten Commandments helps explain what love looks like, but the Holy Spirit helps make love a reality. So let's make it a reality in our world. We just might change it. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful First of all, I'm thankful for that you've loved us like you have. But God, there is no excuse if we stop short from loving other people. Father, our thoughts, our actions, our words, they must reflect the love you have given us. And God, as Christians, we should not accept any other way. God, we kill with our words, we steal with our thoughts. We lie with our behavior and our attitudes. We covet the world when the world should be looking at us and wanting what we have. But Father, may the world know what we have by the love that we show. God, thank you for showing your love for us. And I pray you would equip us and enable us to love one another and to live in a way that always expresses your love towards each other. I cannot use, I cannot take from those that I love like you've loved me. We ask all of this in the loving name of Jesus, amen.